Well, we are right in the middle of the beginning, which is a fun sentence to say. Yeah, we're right in the middle of our series, The Beginning, because at some point along the way of life, all of us find ourselves at a beginning or at a new beginning. And many of us right now, because we've just come out of a three-month or a six-month pause, we find ourselves at a new beginning right now. And maybe you find yourselves at a different beginning, at the beginning of a marriage, beginning of parenting life, beginning of college, beginning of a new career or a new job or whatever. We all find ourselves at some point at a beginning. And so we're looking to the beginning to help us understand who God is and what God has expected of humanity from the beginning. And we've learned some, some key foundational truths about who God is and what, what God expects of us from the beginning. And here's where we've kind of been leading up to this point. Week one, we learned that God created everything and God created everything, that everything God does is good, that everything God speaks is good, everything God starts is good, everywhere God leads is good and is for our good, that everything God did and everything God does and everything God created and everything God creates is good. Good. And then last week, we looked to the, to the opposite side of that, of what happened after God created everything good and what caused it so that everything God created was good, but so much of what we experience is not good. And what we learned and what we talked about last week was the idea that sin broke everything, that the second creation chose the creation over the created, the second mankind chose creation over the creator, we lost. That sin broke everything, that sin breaks everything and kills everyone it touches. And sin started in the Garden of Eden and it has been breaking and killing and destroying everything it touches ever since. And that's why we find ourselves in a broken world and that's why we find ourselves surrounded by so much not good. And so that's where we left off last week. Now, here's what happened from there. Over the, the next few generations, Adam and Eve's, Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve's children sinned, and their children sinned, and their children chose sin, and their children chose sin, over and over and over and over again, until things spiraled out of control to the point where God had to do something about mankind's sin. And that's where we're going to pick it up in Genesis chapter 6. This is the story of God doing something about the evil and wickedness that had come through mankind's sin. In Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5, we're told this, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. That's an ominous statement. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth, together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. And then it says this, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. That entire paragraph is bad news for everyone except Noah. Story goes on in verse 9. It says this, These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Now, wouldn't it be something to have that kind of reputation? I mean, most of us are going for a reputation as nice, kind, smart, funny, popular, a lot of friends, hard worker. I mean, th those are the things that most of us are going for when it comes to our reputation. And that is not what Noah was known for by his peers, by his family members, by people who would write about him in generations to come. Noah was righteous. Noah was blameless. Noah was known as someone who walked with God. 
And, and, I, and I read that and I'm, I'm convicted and I'm inspired because I want that to be my reputation. I want my children to not just see me as someone who preaches and not just see me as someone who teaches and someone who leads the church. I want my children to know me as someone who walks with God. And that's something that we can all choose. Now, the story goes on in verse 10. It says this, And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I want to say, I think Ham lost out in the naming process there. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided. I have decided. In other words, this is set in stone. I've already made up my mind to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Now, imagine you're Noah. You have a reputation as a holy man, as a righteous man, as someone who does their best to follow God at every step of the long, along the way. And sure, you're not perfect, but you get it right more often than not, that people notice this is a guy who's doing his best to follow God at every point along the way. And you have a relationship with God. You talk with God. You pray with God. To the best of your abilities, you follow what God wants you to do at any given moment along the way. And then you, you look around the world because you know have, have a sense of right and wrong and right and wrong and right and wrong. And you have this sense of right and wrong. And you look at the world around you and you think, man, stuff is pretty messed up. There's some real brokenness in the world. There's some real evil in the world. There's some, real pe there's some people who just absolutely don't pay attention to anything that God wants for them. Like there's some really messed up stuff going on in the world. I mean, some of us, let's be honest, 2020 has made us feel like that a lot. As you look around the world and you see the brokenness and you see the division and you see the hatred that's come out in our world in 2020 and in the recent years and years and years and has built up and built up and built up. When you look at the world, sometimes you look at the world and go, this is just messed up. This is messed up. Something, something is, needs to be done about all this. And so, you, so you're Noah and you're looking at, you know, thousands of years ago and you're looking around going, man, the world is messed up. It's just evil. There's so much wrong going on in the world. And then one day, imagine that God taps you on the shoulder. And while you're looking at the world and going, man, stuff just seems messed up. God taps you on the shoulder and says, yeah, stuff is messed up. And I want to let you know, I'm about to do something about how messed up the world is. We're going to start over. I'm going to practice some creative destruction and we're wiping everything and everyone and everything that lives on the world. We're wiping it all out and we are starting over with you. I mean, just imagine, imagine you are Noah in this situation. You're going, yeah, thanks for saying it. Wait, 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 we're doing what? You're starting over with my, your wife, I mean, like, I mean, sure, I, I think they're doing wrong, but those are some of my friends. Like, those are some, like, I have extended family. Like, you're talking about wiping everyone. Like, God, what are you, what are you doing? We're, we're going to do what now? I mean, this is a big moment. And then God went, God wasn't done. God wasn't done because he had just told Noah what he was about to do. Now God tells Noah what God expects from Noah in this process. In verse 14, we're told this, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you're to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You're to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle and upper decks. Now this is a big boat. This is a big project. To get some perspective on what this would have looked like, the ark would have been one and a half football fields long. It would have been half a football field wide, and it would have been four times taller than a basketball hoop. 
four and a half times taller than a basketball hoop. This is a gigantic project. This would be a big project today, but this was a massive project in a time where power tools didn't exist and where barely any tools existed. This was a massive project. This is too big of a project to ask any one person and maybe their sons to partake in. This is a massive project. This is an unbelievable instruction from God when civilization was mud huts, or if you were lucky, a couple rocks forming a wall and then mud huts the rest of the way. This is an unbelievable assignment. It's daunting. And when you understand the time, this is too big of a task. But this reveals something important about God, and this is a big deal. We are called to be active participants in what God is doing. We are called to be active participants in what God is doing. God called Noah because God was about to do something big. And as someone who was called by God, as someone who had a relationship with God, Noah was never supposed to just sit idly by waiting for God to do everything. No, Noah had a part to play in what God was about to do. This is important. God calls us friend, but God doesn't just want us to be a friend. God wants us to be a partner. God wants us to be an active participant, to be actively involved. God doesn't just want you to be a friend. He wants you to be a partner in what he's doing. And sometimes that will re require really small responsibilities and small steps on your part. And other times it may require massively big responsibilities and massively responsible tasks in your lives and for the lives of people around you. The story goes on in verse 17. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You, also, you are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten. Gather it as food for you and for them. And then it says this. This is, this is an amazing, unbelievable statement. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Noah did everything. Everything that he was commanded. Noah did everything that he was commanded to do. I mean, God gave him a lot of details and he crossed off all of the de details on the checklist. God gave him a lot of T's to cross and a lot of I's to dot and he crossed every T and he dotted every I. God gave him a huge responsibility and this was no short-term fast job. This was a massive job with a massive responsibility with a long-term calendar impact. The, the, the chapter right before this story picks up tells us that when God began to speak to Noah, Noah was 500 years old. And the next chapter where we're told when Noah actually went into the ark, Noah is now 600 years old, which if you're good or even if you're bad at math, this was a 100 year project to build the ark and to gather all of the animals and to gather all the food and the provisions for what would be a long time in the ark. This was a long project with a lot of details and a lot of instructions from God. And Noah did every bit of it. And this brings us just, I think, to a really, really important thing and a really important place for us to stop and pay attention. Here's what I want to make sure we understand. A new beginning often requires a long obedience in the same direction. A new beginning often requires a long obedience in the same direction. 
direction. See, this is really where the rubber meets the road for most of us, isn't it? This is really what separates people who experience long-term lasting life change and people who set out with really good ambitions. See, anyone can do something well one time, but this is an obedience in the same direction for a long time. This is a long obedience. This is days and weeks and months and years and decades and a century of obedience to God's plan and to God's way. And that is what was required for Noah and for humanity to have a new beginning. Your your new beginning, just like Noah's, it might require, and I will dare say it probably will require, a long obedience in the same direction. If you want real lasting life change to take place, it will require a long obedience in the same direction. See, a new beginning of a sober life isn't a single day sober. It's an everyday choosing sobriety. A new beginning to marriage doesn't mean loving your wife well one day. It means waking up day one and day two and day three, and you're not going to get it perfect, but you're going to do your best to love her on day four and day five and day six and day seven, to love your spouse and to respect your spouse. Mending broken family relationships won't be a single act of forgiveness. It requires an over and over over and over again, choosing to make forgiveness a habit. A new beginning in your finance doesn't require discipline and sacrifice and generosity one day. It requires discipline and sacrifice and generosity continually over and over and over again. Your new beginning will most likely require a long obedience in the same direction. It's hard. It's also worth it. Because at the end of the long obedience, you will get to tell a story that very few people ever get to tell. I obeyed God for the long haul. And because I was obedient for the long haul, what God did did in me and what God is doing through me is worth every bit of my sacrifice and my surrender and my obedience. Story picks up then. Top of Genesis chapter 7 tells us this. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. Seven days from now, I will make it rain. I love that God used this phrase. I'm going to make it rain. I'm going to make it rain, except God meant literal rain. (laughs) I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. And again, Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. So Noah, his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives entered the ark because of the flood waters. Seven days later, the flood waters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I want to pause here for a second. One of the bigger arguments that can happen against faith or against Christianity is sometimes this idea of like, are we supposed to believe that everything that we're told happened in Genesis actually happened? Like, like are we supposed to actually believe that there was a worldwide flood and God started over and wiped everyone off the face of the earth except the people that were collected and the animals that were collected in this one boat in the middle of nowhere in the Middle East? Like, are we really supposed to buy that and believe that? That God just got so ticked off that he wiped out everybody and started over with, like, are we supposed to believe that? And, and, and I get that concern. It, this story, it sounds kind of fantastical, which by the way, is a word. It didn't get 
you know, corrected by auto by autocorrect. Okay, it's it's an actual word. But here's what's interesting though: when you read real accounts and literature from ancient civilizations, virtually every civilization civilization has some version of this story and these events. Virtually everyone has something in their beginning story, in their origin story of, of, of who they are in their history. There is a story about a worldwide flood that happened way, 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 way back in time. And so here's the thing, names change depending on the language and the tradition, but it's incredibly likely that something like this happened. Was it worldwide? I'm not sure, and scientists definitely don't seem to think there was one worldwide flood, but rather different floods that happened at different times. But here's the thing, at the end of the day, there was something massive that happened at this time for these people. In the Middle East, in the Middle East and in Eastern Europe, there are massive accounts of gigantic floods that form different bodies of water that still exist to this day, and the flooding that occurred to them may just be what we're talking about and what we're reading about right here. And I say that just to help us understand, faith doesn't require shutting off your brain. Faith should never mean shutting off your brain or ignoring science or ignoring what people say. Faith doesn't require shutting off your brain. Faith requires actively using your brain to understand how scripture and the world that we experience align. That's what faith often requires. Actively using your brain to understand how the world that we experience and the, and the world that is described in scripture come together. In Genesis chapter 8, then we're told this. God remembered Noah, as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water began to subside. The sources of the watery depths and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky stopped. The water steadily receded from the earth, and by the end of 150 days, the water had decreased significantly. The ark came to rest in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. In the 600 and 601st year, in the first month, on the first day of the month, the water that had covered the earth was dried up. Then Noah removed the ark's cover and saw that the surface of the ground was drying. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was dry. Here's an important thing to remember. God's discipline never lasts forever. God's discipline never lasts forever. See, the flood was severe, but the flood was not forever. The water covered the earth for a long time, but not for all time. The discipline that God dished out with the flood was not meant to last forever. And it was not the end of the story. It was actually the beginning of a new story. See, God is good. God is good. That's the fundamental starting point that we have for everything else that we read throughout the book of Genesis, for everything that we read throughout the rest of scripture, that God is good. And as hard as this is to believe or to feel, God's discipline is good. God's discipline is good and God's discipline is for our good. See, when God puts you in time out, it's good. When God strips away unproductive relationships and harmful relationships around you, as much as you love those people, it's God being good. When God leads us into a storm to correct our view of him, it's good. It doesn't necessarily feel good, but it is good and it's for our good. But even while I say it's good, I never want God's discipline or correction in my life to last forever. I never want it to last for very long. And luckily, God doesn't seem to want that either. When you look at this story and when you look through the whole of scripture, God's discipline is for a stretch or for a season. 
But God's goal in discipline is always to correct, not to punish forever. It's to correct behavior and to begin again, not to punish forever and leave you outside in the cold. God is good. He's a good father who pays attention to you and knows how to get our attention, knows how to bring correction in my life and in your life. But like a good father, he will leverage discipline until we understand the correction that needs to be made. See, discipline is for a season. It is for our good. It is never forever, and it is never the end of the story. In fact, it's often the beginning of a brand new part of my story and your story. Verse 15, then God spoke to Noah, come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah, along with his sons, his wives, and his sons' wives came out. All the animals, all the creatures that crawl, and all the flying creatures, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark by their families. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, I imagine the more noisy, annoying animals probably were the easiest, quickest sacrifices to make. Oh, oh, chimpanzee, you thought it was really cool on the ark to be throwing your stuff around? Well, guess what? You're the first sacrifice. Cat, you were crawling up on me and rubbing up on me and purring, and that was really weird and creeped out. You're, you're the next sacrifice. Birds that overheard conversations and decided to repeat things that were mumbled and weren't meant to actually be heard, you're going on the altar next. I would imagine these animals, some of the animals were really, really easy to sacrifice. Other ones were like, oh, cute. I don't want to, I don't want to put, but Noah was willing to sacrifice to God as a way of thanking God that the discipline was over. In Genesis 9, then we're told this, then God said to Noah and his sons with him, understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all of the wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again, never again, Never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign. This is the sign of the covenant. I am making between me and you and every living creature with you a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, this is an interesting word in there. The word covenant The word covenant, generally in the faith world, we tend to think of the covenant that God gave to Abraham, that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai and that that the nation of Israel lived under for a thousand years. And then the covenant that Jesus established with us on the cross and with his resurrection, that there's a new covenant. We tend to think of those as the big covenants that were made throughout human history, throughout the history of faith. But this is the first time that the word covenant is used by God in scripture. And the word covenant is a description of, hey, we are entering into a relationship. You will be my people. I will be your God. And covenant is different from a contract. Covenant is a relational word. Contract is 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 an agreement. But a a covenant is a relationship. But this is why in marriage, we don't talk about a marriage contract. We talk about a marriage covenant because a marriage is far more than an agreement on a piece of paper. A marriage is a relationship. And it's, it's, it's the marriage covenant is here's what you can expect from me. This is why we make vows. By the way, if your marriage ever starts to feel more like a contract and less like a covenant, it means you have a marriage that needs some work and might just need a new beginning. But at this beginning, God did not make a contract. God made a covenant. God made some promises because he wanted people to understand what the relationship was going to be like. And what God promised here is so interesting. 
It says a lot about who God wanted to be to his people, what God, what God wanted them to feel towards him, what God wanted them to expect from him. And here's what God promised. He said, I'll never destroy the whole world again. I will never destroy the whole world again. I will never get so fed up with humanity and so fed up with the world that I wipe everything off their face and start of, of the earth and start over again. I will not do that again. Here's what God was really saying. You have seen my fury. You've had a front row view of my discipline, but I don't want you to live in fear or terror of what I might do next. I want you to trust me that even this was good, but ultimately that I am good. And here's the bigger point. God wants us to respect his authority and never fear his personality. God wants us to respect his authority and never fear his personality. It would have been very easy for Noah and for his family to live in moment by moment, by day by day by day by day, fear of God for the rest of their lives. They had seen and had a front row view of God wiping every living thing off of the earth, and they knew that it was a punishment and a discipline by God because God had tapped their dad on the shoulder and said, this is my fury. This is my discipline. This is how I am going to start over. They could have had an absolute moment-by-moment -moment fear that God might just wipe them out next, that they might think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, do the wrong thing, talk to the wrong person, have the wrong thoughts, have the wrong dreams, have the wrong whatever, have the wrong ambitions, and God would come for them next. They could have had that fear. They could have had that fear, but God did not want them to live in that fear. So God made a promise. Guys, this is the last time that will ever happen. I am starting over and I am choosing you as my people and I will not do that again because I want you to respect my authority. I do not want you to fear my personality. See, let's be honest. Some of you, you grew up around a religious tradition just like what I just described, where there was a moment by moment fear that God might just come for you next, that God brought you into this world and he might just take you out if you think the wrong thing, say the wrong thing, look at the wrong thing, drink the wrong thing, in, in, inhale some sort of substance. If you hang out with the wrong people, if you have the wrong thoughts, or if you have the wrong, you know, whatever, if you, that if you are wrong enough, God might just come and wipe you out. And God might just bring his punishment down in a way that is so severe that you can't handle it and there might not be any coming back from it. Some of you, you grew up with that very real fear and that very real fear, unfortunately, was attached to religion or was attached to Christianity. And I just want to let you know, if you ran away from that, good. But if you ran away from that, I say good, if you're back with us today, I say good, because if someone showed you that version of God, if that's the God that you grew up with, someone showed you the wrong version of God, and today I hope that you can see that God is ultimately better than that, that God is ultimately good, that God has better for you. And while God does have power and God does have authority, he doesn't wield those over us and he doesn't leverage those over us as to, to bring fear in our lives. He actually wants us to know his personality is love and his goodness and his mercy and his compassion and his holiness, but not to make us feel as if we can't come close. He sent Jesus to die for us so that we could come close, so that we could actually know him and know his personality. God wants us to respect his authority, but never to fear his personality. So what's the bottom line? What do we need to know at the beginning? What do we need to know to our new beginnings? Two things. Here's the first one. A single act of obedience might be your new beginning. A single act of obedience might be your new beginning. 
See, I know earlier I talked about the long obedience in a single direction, and that's important. But the long obedience in a single direction doesn't come, out with a, doesn't come about without a single step in a direction. See, I imagine for Noah, it started with writing down the measurements that God gave him or maybe knocking over his first tree. And while it would take him a hundred years to finish the work, I think God knew he had his guy with that first single act of obedience because none of the rest of the story happens without a single step. Now, I don't know what your next step is and I don't know the, the new beginning that you're hoping for and I'm, 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 and I, and I'm not gonna try to guess it, but I, but I guarantee God is probably not gonna talk to you and ask you to build an ark, although it's 2020. Maybe we should be building arcs at this point. I don't know, but if I could, could I give you some ideas of some first steps that maybe God or some next steps that maybe God is asking you or would require for your first step? It might be a step of commitment. Maybe you're a person where you like to hang around the edges of church or of Christian community and you kind of hang around the edges and hang around the edges and hang around the edges, but you never really have wanted to actually dive in. And it might just be that as long as you stay on the edges, you're not going to experience what God has for you. Maybe it's time for you to take the step of commitment and to actually dive in. For some of you, maybe it's a step of consistency. You did it once and that was great, but guess what? Anyone can do something one time. The change that's going to happen is when you take the same step again the next time, take the same step another time, another time, that you decide to be consistent with your Bible reading, with your church attendance, with your service, with your acts of worship, with your, with your generosity, that you decide that I am actually not going to just be a person who does this one time, but I am going to be consistent. Maybe for you, it's a step of love. It's a step of love that you actually look to meet someone else's needs instead of meeting your own another time, that you actually look to meet the needs of someone else besides yourself. And the good news about this step is you don't need to go looking for someone to love. You don't have to go find some random person on the street. You don't have to find some random stranger at the mall. You can begin by loving the people that God has put closest to you. You can love your spouse. You can love your children. You can love your roommates. You can love your professors. You can love your coworkers, the people that you regularly spend time with. That's probably who God wants you to take a step of love towards. Maybe it's that you need a step of connection with God, a step of connection with God. This is taking a step to know God more. Maybe you've been around church for a long time or you've been around Christian community for a long time, but your understanding of the word of God or your standing of, of prayer has always come through someone else that has never been personal for you. Maybe it's time for you to take a step to read the Bible for yourself. Maybe it's time for you to take a step to develop a prayer life or another spiritual habit that helps you grow in your connection and your relationship with God. Maybe it's a step of sacrifice. See, maybe it's, it's possible that for some of you up until now, you have been cool with Christianity and you've been cool with church and you've been cool with Christian community community for as long as it doesn't cost you anything. But I've got some news for you. At some point along the way, it will cost you something. And if you duck out every time that it costs you something, you will miss out on what God has on the other side of your sacrifice. So the question for you today is, are you willing to take the step when it actually cost you something? Now, here's the thing. You're thinking, well, that, you know, that sounds great. It sounds great that if I take the step, you know, it's going to work. If I take the step, it's going to work. But maybe you're wondering like, but what if I, what if I take the step and it doesn't work? What if I take that step and I don't feel closer to God right away? What if I take that step of sacrifice and I don't feel like God honored and I don't feel like God rewarded it? What if, what if I take a step to dive in and get close to people, but I don't feel like people will love me back the, right away the way that I want to be loved back? You're thinking, what if I, what if I take the step and it doesn't work? And I just want to say this obedience always works. Obedience always works. Even when it doesn't feel like it works, 
It works. And here's why. Obedience works in you because obedience is a sign of surrender to God's plans and God always responds to surrender. As, as an incredible pastor, Charles Stanley has said throughout his life of ministry for 51 years at one church in Atlanta, Georgia, here's what he said over and over again. Here's what he said as he announced his retirement last week, which by the way, Charles Stanley, not that you'll ever see this. Congratulations on 51 incredible years in ministry. But here's what he said last week as he announced his retirement. He said, I've always said, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Obey God and leave all of the consequences to him. In other words, you're not responsible for it working. Your responsibility is obedience. God takes care of all the rest and determining what working is in you and for you and around you. You simply obey. You surrender to God because God always responds to our surrender and to our obedience. It always works. It doesn't always work like you expect it, but God always works and always responds in response to our obedience and our surrender. Here's the second thing I want to make sure we understand today. It's never too late to begin again. It is never too late to begin again. For Noah, the beginning again happened at 500 years old, and it happened again at 601 years old. Old. And I gotta just say, if it wasn't too late for Noah, if it just was, if it wasn't too late for Noah, I think we all just need to understand it's never too late. It's never too late for you. It's never too late for me. For some of you, you are not worried about age. You're wondering if after all you've done, if it's change is actually possible for you, can you actually begin again? For some of you, you are staring at age and you're staring 60 in the face and you're feeling old. And for others of you, like me, you're staring thir- your mid-30s or 40 in the face and you're feeling old and your body is aching and you're feeling some things that you haven't felt in a long time and that you haven't felt since football practice or volleyball practice or soccer practice back when you were a teenager and your body hurts in ways that it hasn't hurt in a long time. And you're thinking, I mean, can it, is it possible at this point to begin again? Is it possible to start over? Is it worth it to put in that energy and that effort and that work? Is it possible to start over? Is it possible in our marriage to start over? Is it possible in our relationship with our kids to start over? Is it possible in those broken relationships in our family across generations and generations where something was said and something was said and something was done and it just hurts and it hurts and it hurts and it doesn't feel like it could ever be right? Can we actually begin again after all of that? And I just want to say to you today, it is never too late to begin again. Is it possible with all the way that I've walked away from God and all the things that God has said that I've ignored, is it possible for me to actually begin again and have a connection with God? It's possible for you to have a connection with God. With Regardless of who you are, regardless of how old you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you've been, you can begin again. Regardless of who you are, where you are, what you've done, who you've been, and who you've been around, you can begin again. And you can begin today. You can begin today. It is never too late to begin again. And here's how we begin again. We place our trust in Jesus. We place our trust that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, for your sins. He died for our sins. That the stuff that we had done that brought a disconnection with God, Jesus paid the price for on the cross. And so we trust what Jesus did on the cross. And then we also trust that Jesus rose from the dead. That Jesus rose from the dead as the first coming out of the grave that we're invited into new life. As we follow Jesus, 
in his death and his resurrection to the end of the old ways and to a brand new beginning in connection and in close relationship with our Heavenly Father. It can happen for you today. And I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for this story. Thank you for the example. Thank you for everything that we learned from Noah. Thank you for his obedience, that we exist today because of his obedience, that the world that exists today, it exists because of his obedience. And God, while we would look around our world and think there's so much that might just be really similar to what happened at the time of Noah, God, thank you that one man's obedience could change the course of human history. And one man's obedience could bring a way out through all the mess of human history. God, thank you for the example. Thank you that our long obedience in the same direction can lead to some really good things in our lives, can lead to some really good things that you would have for us. So God, help us to be willing to take the first step and the next step and the next step. God, whatever step that you're asking us to take, help us to follow the example of Noah and to do everything that you command us and instruct us and direct us to do. Help us to do everything. Help us have wisdom to know what that is. Help us have the courage to actually take the steps and to put into practice whatever you're asking us to put into practice. And God, thank you that for every single one of us, we can begin again. We can begin again today. We can begin again tomorrow. We can begin again every single day in a relationship with you. So God, help us to know what that looks like. Help us to trust you with our whole lives. Help us to trust that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to pay for our sins. Help us to trust that his resurrection is enough to bring us into new life and a new relationship with you. We love you, God. Thank you for the new beginning that Jesus offers and invites every one of us into. We love you and pray this all in his name. Amen.